Welcome to Stumptown Soundcheck, our featured podcast today on our podcast co-op. This podcast is a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. Jamie Dunphy, your host, will guide you through the pulse of Portland's music scene, revealing its rich tapestry and exploring its significant cultural, economic, and societal implications. Whether you're a passionate fan of music, seeking to delve deeper into Portland's vibrant music scene, or a policymaker aiming to better understand the intersection of music and community dynamics, or simply someone who is curious about how music impacts our lives in more ways than we realize, this podcast has something for you. Welcome once again to Stumptown Soundcheck, and here's your host, Jamie Dunphy. Welcome back to Stumptown Soundcheck, our monthly conversation about the vital intersection of music and public policy. I'm your host, Jamie Dunphy. Let's not reinvent the wheel when it comes to supporting the music industry in Portland. We're not that different. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're different, all right. We're the last major city in the United States without a Live Nation venue, for now at least. We're the largest independent music scene in the country. But that independence is directly being threatened by enormous market forces. So what's worked in other cities? My guests today have been deeply involved in the fight for independent music in the cities of Washington, D.C. and Austin, Texas. Both of these cities have international reputations as music cities. D.C. has long been an incubator for some of the most influential bands of the last 40 years, while Austin calls itself the live music capital of the world. But is that still the case? Do D.C. and Austin stand up as examples of what we should aspire to? or cautionary tales of what Portland should worry about. Scott Strickland is a professional musician from Austin, Texas, where he also serves on the Austin Music Commission. He's a touring musician who released his first studio album just last year, and as a working musician for the last two decades, has seen the best and worst of music cities across the country. Welcome, Scott. Hey, how's it going? Chris Naum is a lawyer and local music organizer in Washington, D.C. He's an active member of Listen Local First, a local music initiative devoted to building awareness and creating opportunities for local musicians and venues in order to raise the profile of DC's local music scene. They've been advocating for local policies that will help protect the music industry against outside pressures, including things that like we've talked about on this show, such as acoustic zoning and agent of change principles. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me all. Very excited to be here. Scott, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in Austin, the live music capital of the world, and help our listeners understand a little bit what's it like on the inside? I would say there's two different versions of the story. I would say there is a like a pre-pandemic story, and then there is a post-pandemic story, basically. So what I mean by that is I got here and I arrived to Austin in 2013. I put out an EP in 2015. And then 2016, I put out another EP with a band. First one was acoustic and I was just, you know, getting my feet wet, the, you know, but the scene was, you could find a band pretty much everywhere. There was a lot of original music. There was a lot of creativity. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of bands making a shake at it and really trying to get to somewhere or to some sort of notoriety or some sort of status in Austin. However, when we got to the pandemic, a lot of things started changing and there seemed to be sort of this mass exodus, if you will, of a lot of my friends, people that I know, great bands that I loved 
from the local scene, they got priced out and really couldn't afford to, you know, live here anymore. And so they left. And what's remained is a very competitive scene. The local Austin music scene as it stands now is, you know, basically everyone's very career driven and we're super focused and we're extremely competitive and there is no shortage of amazing and incredible music here in town anymore. But because a lot of smaller venues, independent venues closed down because of there's just not a whole lot of places for people to play music anymore. There's one thing that I think is probably going to catch fire in maybe a couple of months is, or maybe, maybe six months or a year is the fact that you've got kids, you know, 18 years old and that are just picking up instruments and want to get out there. And they're very quickly discovering that they can't afford to actually play music in the city because the cost of playing a show here is just way too high. There's no such thing as a $5 cover anymore. People just want to bring bands without a cover charge or whatever, so they can sell pretty expensive beers and all that stuff. And just to drive revenue for the bar itself, because the bar itself is actually struggling. So it's a scene that I still very much believe in. And I'm speaking, you know, I've got two different versions of what I'm speaking as one is a musician and the other is as a music commissioner. I would say that I'm a commissioner because I want to take part in and try to fix a lot of the things that are wrong here. A lot of the systematic pressures that we've been having in terms of like Ticketmaster, for instance, coming in, or mm -hmm. we've got, you know, Penske that had to, you know, come in and buy up South by Southwest and kind of bail them out a little bit. Just with a lot of industry things that are happening commercially around the country. And it seems like as though we have been a big target of a lot of that systematic integration, which ultimately pushes out local music. I'm interested to know a little bit more. I'm going to come back to this about the Austin Music Commission and know more about that. But first, I sure. want to turn to Chris. Chris, so the work you've been doing in D.C. with Listen Local First, it sounds very similar to the work that we've been doing with Music Portland here, trying to organize our entire scene around a common sense of strategic goals and being a strategic partner that the scene needs when it can no longer be organic. So this sort of leads me ultimately to my general thesis, which is that we shouldn't reinvent the wheel here, that there are veterans who've been in the fight and of lessons that we can learn from. You've been heavily involved in DC regarding the agent of change principles and some sort of strategic conversations around how government can support music in the future. Mm -hmm. Would you tell me a little bit about like, what that fight has been like and what your approach to it has been and how you got involved in this in the first place? Sure. Well, let's go back to the beginning of that. You talk about sharing the struggles and the similarities between the fight in Portland and DC. I can say going back to the beginning of my advocacy work, you know, back to like 2010, 2011. I mean, around that time, I remember hearing about some of the programs that were happening in Portland and some of the initiatives and like, oh, can we get our government to consider some of that over here. So there's, you know, there's always a back and forth. I mean, we're Definitely. talking back to the idea of, I don't know how active it is now, but the concept of fair trade music, mm -hmm. you know, and fair trade music was something that was, I think the Portland Music Union came up with like the concept and, and maybe it was adopted by the General Music Union as well. But just this simple thing, like, is there a set of best practices within your community that can be shared that one the government can help codify or not, or the venues can come together and presenters can come together to help sort of solidify, you know, that was something that came from Portland. I mean, I remember there's a pilot parking project that we tried to see if we can find a way to make that work in DC. 
That was my big accomplishment from my days in City Hall. <laughs> well, I used all that information from whatever was publicly available from what you had done and slammed it on the council member's desk. I'm like, come on, let's do this here. We're having the same issues. So that unfortunately didn't move. But, you know, I think a lot of the work about sort of taking a hands-on approach, taking like a, a ground-focused approach on preserving the scene is happening across the country. And I, I would say more of a lot of it, you see a lot of people that had a little bit of downtime due to COVID, like rework these advocacy networks. I know that's what happened in DC. You know, we had a loose coalition of advocacy between venue owners, promoters, presenters, artists, artist collectives, local government officials, community organizers, that when everything shut down, the type of assistance they needed was like really like getting their next meal. It was no longer like issues about someone getting stiff for payment for one gig or wh whatever issues were coming up before when it turned to that sort of severity. I think people really got together and decided to build these advocates. And, and what I've noticed is I, I'm also a member of Neva National Independent Venue Association and I'm the chapter co-chair for the Mid-Atlantic chapter. So excellent. through that work, I see that what we've done in sort of building our coalition, our advocacy coalition in DC during this time, just before and throughout the pandemic, and that type of thing is happening in cities across, the, uh, really across the country. And like this allowing, having the time, having places to come and share information across cities, like what Neva provides, has been very helpful because that's along with like what this podcast is doing that allows me to see what's happening in Oklahoma City, what's happening in Nashville, what's happening in other places. Like how much of that ARPA money funds that we're going to cities, how much of it is being used to help the local venues, help local festival, you know, presenters? Oh, look, hey, they're doing this in Oregon. We need to make sure that a larger allocation of our funds is going to recovery efforts for the entertainment industry here in D.C. I mean, that's like been an essential part of the action here. I mean, you talk about agent of change. I think the pandemic allowed us to think about like granularly, what do we need? Yes, there's more funding for the arts. Yes. How can we create systems like a fair trade music? So to make sure if the city is giving out money to folks that they're, you know, the people that are getting the fund money are paying artists fairly and all that stuff. But I think preserving our entertainment districts and preserving our, our small venues, independent venues is so essential. And I think only during the pandemic, we saw that artists really came together to understand that. And like before, there's always a fight between the artist and the venue owner. But I think we understood that like when the venue stepped up to help artists during a pandemic and the pandemic and the artists saw that they needed to help the venues. We saw so many venues die in DC and really the smallest venues. If you think of the music industry as like a pyramid, your local mm -hmm. music industry, where the biggest venues are at the top, and then your 100 cap venues, you, know, you need the most of them to support the weight of that pyramid going up. We just saw a whole bottom side of the pyramid get knocked out from the ecosystem, which makes it incredibly imbalanced. And if you just have the, the 400, 600, 800, you know, the bigger venues that were able to survive somehow and get more SVOG funds and stuff like that, that's fine. And those venues are important, but then really what sustains the local music economy are those small venues. And that's what we saw go. And so. Agent of change is really just setting policies in place within the community to allow for us to preserve these locations. I'm happy to get into it more, but I, I feel like I'm talking a lot right here. No, no. That, that's, I want to dive in deeper on that in a second, but I also want to come back to Scott. I'm so glad I have both of you on here because it sounds like we are all experiencing the same sort of post-COVID 
re-examination of the mm -hmm. foundations of our scene around us. So yeah. Scott, Austin has a music commission, which is first of all, incredible, but what do you do? What does that look like? What kind of actual authority or, you know, power to enact change do you actually have in that capacity? Yeah. I, I just want to like echo everything that Christopher was saying. It's pretty much exactly what we're doing. What's been happening in DC has been happening in Austin. And I, I mean, it's not like, I mean, I talk to people all over the country and the situation is very similar and also shout out to Neva also, Cody Cowan, you know, we kind of riffed a little bit, you know, I respect him very much. He is a wealthy, I don't want to say adversary, but he's a, he's a wealthy friend slash adversary slash person. <laughs> and I respect him very much. So there are um, no permanent friends or enemies. Exactly. Exactly. So the commission itself is the music commission. We're just one of 33 boards and commissions that represent council. And we recommend things to, to them just like any other city border commission would what happens though is i think previously what we were working on the big thing that we were working on is was the live music fund and i'll get to that in a second but you know it was mostly different nonprofits, different people kind of just announcing almost like a brand awareness of this is what my nonprofit does or this is what my business does this is what we're able to offer and hopefully people will come out to it or something like that. It was basically kind of just saying, Hey, we do have a community of musicians here. And usually everyone's like so busy looking for gigs and playing the shows and finding them <laughs> and hunting down the money and getting more shows and the endless cycle of just doing shows that we don't have a time to just stop and look and say what's out there. Well, that's kind of what the commission was doing before and their big project which had been happening for years was what's called the live music fund. And basically it's a grant program that's awarded by hotel occupancy tax funds from the city. And what we do with that is we created this program and turned that into five and $10,000 grants for musicians and independent promoters to basically, they can put on a show, do some studio work, they could do a music video, whatever is going to help basically drive people to the city to continue to produce more hotel occupancy taxes. And so the city can make money. That's going to be where we're going to award those funds. When is that going live? It went live a couple of months ago. Oh, wow. And now we're starting to get some data from that. And people got their award letters like two and a half weeks ago, something like that. And now we're in this process of trying to figure out, obviously, was it successful? Who got awarded? Who didn't? What are they using the money for? What are the proposals? What was accepted? And all of that stuff. And this was done. So the first round of this, because, and this is where Cody Cowan and I kind of had a little bit of our rift, one of our rifts was, you know, the fact that venues being businesses got SVO money and got, you know, idle economic injury, disaster loan money, SBO shuttered venue operating grant money. Right. They were able to get paycheck protection program funds. And they also got money from the city as well through ways of ARPA to help keep their spaces open. Whereas the, the musicians didn't really get much of anything at all, except for if, you know, you were full-time musician, you got $600 of unemployment for about 13 months or something like that, or whatever the mm. case may be. And then. If you had a business, you got an idle loan or whatever, you got some paycheck protection program money, but it was nowhere near what the venues were getting. And obviously they have infrastructure and labor and costs and all that stuff. Sure. But what we were arguing about was the fact that 
live music fund needed to go out to musicians first. And this was a situation where venues wanted to be included in that first round of disbursement of funds. And basically it was a really hard fight on that to say no. Sure. And this is why. And now that that's done and over with, now we're bringing venues into the mix for round two. And that's going to be a very interesting thing because I'm fully on support with venues, but some of the money that's being used for the live music fund right now for individual artists, I don't think that it should be used. For instance, I do not believe that we should be using taxpayer funds for someone to go in the studio and make a record or make a single or something like that. Sure. I think if you're going to use those funds for a project, the risk of that project just going awry or whatever, or being shelved is much higher than someone that's gone through the fire of making a record and now they need to promote that record. That's different. Sure. And there's also like hotel, hotel occupancy tax laws of section 355, 354. I think that deals with money being specifically used for revenue generated by hotel occupancy taxes. And you can't really do that if you're in a studio making a record. So, I mean, the details definitely matter in how we land the support because strategic support, that's what we've been saying on this show is that liking the arts and supporting the arts are two different things. Liking music and Mm -hmm. supporting music is not the same thing. And that having a strategic inside perspective on how the music industry works to guide the decisions of where public dollars and public policies go is so vital. I think that having a music commission is so incredible. Yeah. One thing I was going to say was we also have like a standard city rate for um, musicians and stuff. So it's like, if a musician is going to perform and it's a city gig, it's $150 per musician per hour. You know, we were able to get that raised to $200 per hour. And then basically we made the recommendation to council that they codify that in the law. And so that's something that we were able to do. I think it was just a couple of months ago, which is a pretty, you know, big thing. And then to the initial question about what does the music commission do? Hmm. We talked to council members about policy and change. And the perfect example right now is we're kind of like ground zero into this fight with South by Southwest when it comes to fair pay. Yeah. And the music commission just voted to make sure that musicians are paid a prevailing wage. And so there's now the unions involved in that. And now we have to figure out how to drum that support. And as I'm talking to you right now, I'm sure that, you know, like there are council members that are being lobbied to, you know, by way of South by, and it's no disrespect to them at all, but that's one of the things that's happening kind of like behind the scenes and, and whatnot. And it's a really big job. It's a huge job. We've kind of taken it from like, hey, this is what we do. These businesses are up. And now we're getting to really tangible, hard hitting the pavement, actionable things to drive results for musicians and venues locally. You know, I find it fascinating hearing what you're saying, because like a lot of what you say that's your issues would be like the dream for like another city that's not designated the music city capital of the world. So it's like hearing, having a music commission, first of all, I mean, it's amazing that you have that. I think that's something that a city like DC has been trying to see how we have a nightlife and economy person, but like, Mm -hmm. as with everything in the city is that the music industry is its own specific business. And we, we try to, when, when we've done advocacy within local community and council, the, you know, legis- other, other legislative bodies, other, you know, destiny, our tourism board and stuff like that. We talk about the difference between like, you know, a venue and, and that's business structure versus a club versus a restaurant. Because like here, there's no distinction. I mean, it's like brick and mortar, right? So brick and mortar versus everyone else who's like non brick and mortar. So like, 
venues actually oftentimes get left out of the discussion here for specific funding for venues because they're just like, we need to get people back into the downtown, right? This discussion, let's get people back downtown. Let's get business back downtown. That's not necessarily where the venues are because the venues have been sort of kept to like the sort of outskirts of different neighborhoods. Right. Sure. So yeah, I just think it's interesting because I wish we were having the fight of like, you know, the venues having like too much of the share (laughs) of the relief funding. It's more like trying to explain why venues are specific business that is not used to turn around every single five years, like a restaurant. Right. That like once that venue is gone, another venue is not coming into that place. Like, you know, like just having to explain these like stuff that we all understand, many of us on this, on this podcast, but like the average, I think, political person, advocate, elected official, it doesn't come natural. Well, Chris, we doubled down on that for me. What has the buy-in been like from elected officials in D.C.? Do you have their ear the way that it seems like Austin clearly has a music has a seat at the table? D.C., what you know, what's that relationship been like? Do you have champions I, on city councils or anything like that? Yeah, we're. I mean, obviously, there are many issues the council deals with, and I don't envy this at multiple levels. And D.C., different than other cities, you know, not only do we answer to the taxpayers, but then a lot of legislation stuff has to be approved by Congress, which is kind of weird. And so there's like pulling and fighting oh, right. on that side as well of what can and can't be done. So yeah, I think we're really special. We also have, I'm sure maybe some of you are familiar with some of your listeners is Go-Go Music, which is DC's own music. And just before the pandemic, DC had an amazing push and a great piece of legislation to codify Go-Go as the official music of DC. And in theory, I mean, it was a great piece of legislation. I think the fight since then has been like, what are the multiple ways that you can fund that initiative? So when you talk about like go-go and maybe some aspects of jazz, I think everyone understands that this is important. Like the music, the historic, like you say Duke Ellington, everyone's like, oh, do you see, you know, like, obviously like that's like, you know, everyone on council understands that, understands that history, understands that legacy. They understand go-go music, but I think the broader ecosystem and how venues play into that and how like, even going back 20 years, lots of venues were forced out. Go-Go music was really forced out of the city for a while and sort of forced into the suburbs. And many of those venues, you were, there, were, there was a period of time in the 90s when Go-Go was excluded from certain parts of the city. And so you got to deal with bringing it back in and understanding how the performance venues are as big a part of the music culture, as big a part of the music ecosystem, as much as the recording studios, recording spaces, you know, the other industry that helps out the music industry. Awesome. So that, that is a big learning curve. I think a lot of people want to, are supportive. There's no one that's like, no, we don't support music. But like, sure, it's just an education. Liking the music and supporting music are two different things though, right? Understand, yeah, understanding yeah. the ecosystem and liking yeah. the music is, are two different things. Right? So guys, we've already reached mm-hmm. the end of our conversation here. I want to give you each one last opportunity. You know, our listeners of this podcast are really trying to invest in the strategic partnerships and thinking thoughtfully about how we invest our time to save Portland's music scene. For each of you, starting with Scott, what is one thing that we should learn from your city that we should bring to Portland? Oh, man, I would say that I think the biggest thing right now, Portland's definitely a sister city of Austin. Right now, I think we're dealing with the issue of prevailing wage for musicians. And what we're working on. And I think we just kind of started working on this with all of this South by Southwest stuff is it's kind of exposed a lot of these systematic flaws that musicians face. It basically just comes down to fair pay Yeah, for the most part. Musicians are still getting paid a hundred bucks. We hope for the same gig back in the 1970s as now, basically. 
it's kind of unconscionable to be even talking about that at this point, given everything that we've been through. But I would say the biggest thing that Portland can learn from us is being a unified front, I guess, in terms of like having that thread directly from the musician or directly from the venue owner to council and maybe even to Congress if possible. I mean, there's so many different threads and, and, and businesses and entities and they're out for their own good too, but they're also doing the good work of making sure that the musicians are being heard. And musicians are a huge voting block in any city. And in particular for us, you know, there are more musicians than there are policemen, firefighters, ambulance, EMT workers combined. So we are a huge voting block in the city and that's why they kind of recognize us as a force. But we also know how to go to city hall and, and how to organize and how to set up for what we want, especially since the pandemic that's really been happening. So it, it's mobilization and it's being ahead of the curve and it's knowing what the message needs to be. And then concerning prevailing wage, it's just, we're trying to make sure that if construction workers can be paid a prevailing wage, if policemen and firefighters and all these other people can be paid a prevailing wage, then musicians should also be included in that, seeing as how we do a good work for the city. Awesome. And Chris, same question to you. What should we learn from DC? You know, there are three things I want to share that I think Portland as well as other cities can share. Three things I think DC's done really well. In the DC, I'm talking about this coalition of artists, venues, collectives that have come together to advocate for over the past couple of years. One, I urge everyone when there are local elections to create a music candidate survey. Every year we send out a poll to our big listserv that's about like 400 entities and ask them to vote on like the top 10 issues within the music community, very specific sort of actionable items that we have in there. And you can go to listenlocalfirst.com. You could see the prior candidate questionnaires, but then we send them out to all the candidates and we bring them on these calls. We do a couple of different calls. We bring them on and get them to talk to the community and we get them to answer where they stand on these issues that the music community cares the most about. And then that way, if it comes to needing to follow up with them or they support a piece of legislation that goes about that, we can point back to that and say, hey, look, remember when you filled out this thing as part of your promise that you were going to support this initiative? Like, where are we on this? It creates a level of accountability for just like really a starting point. Like, these are the issues we care about. So when any musician, any venue, any arts collective goes to talk to their local elected officials, we make the beginning conversation. Where are we on these things that we set up? So that's one. Two, since venues were going away, we're talking about these small venues. And in D.C., it's really sad. Many of the venues that disappeared during the pandemic were minority-owned, jazz clubs, soul clubs, you know, places like this that sort of catered to our really unique communities that are from D.C., that been and played and represented D.C. culture identity for so long. So for us, there was like, what can we do to incentivize these smaller venues specifically. So we created this performance arts promotion amendment, which is essentially what it does. If you're under a 300 person venue, you get a tax rebate. Right now it's $15,000. We're trying to go up at the end of each year. So as long as you show that you host regular live music, you pay fair wages, and we haven't gotten to the crux of fair wages, you know, we're saying that are comparable to community standards. And that's the language we're able to include. We hope to take that further. But basically, the, these venues can get a, a tax rebate at the end of the year. It's been very helpful. It's incentivizing these smaller venues and or restaurant that wants to host live music to do the right thing, to host live music on a regular basis. They know that they'll get a portion of those funds back on their taxes. And I think that's important if we want to incentivize small, smaller venues, because small venues are the starting point for many musicians. And third, 
We haven't passed this legislation, but it was an amazing piece of legislation that was drafted by a council member. It's called the Harmonious Living Legislation. It's a take on agent of change. And it's really something that we noticed that like, if you look at soundproofing across our cities, and this is more so since the pandemic when people are living from home, there are standards for soundproofing in between units in residential units, but there's no soundproofing standards for external. Mm -hmm. So hearing the music from the outside, there's no such standard. So basically the legislation went to create or set a higher standard for a sound transmission for the external wall of the building in designated areas that are downtown, like commercial districts. Mm -hmm. And along with that, it gives one-time opportunities for rebates for venues that want to increase soundproofing or residentials that want to put in work to increase soundproofing. The idea is that if you were there first, the people that came second should be responsible for the costs of soundproofing. Or like putting the additional pieces in is to not be the agent of change. So if the venue's been there for 20 years, the new condos that are coming in need to take the responsibility to put in a little bit higher soundproofing standard and take that on. And the same thing, what we see around the city, which we like, but hasn't been codified yet, is that lease disclosure. If you're buying or leasing in an area that has, you know, is an entertainment district, it has higher sound, that's in the lease. So basically, you know that that's there. You should be calling police. And even if so, if you have sound ordinances in your city, make sure that police are not the first people take those noise complaints. It should be health departments. Yep. It should be other departments. And it shouldn't be police showing up when someone's busking too loud, police showing up when everyone calls a complaint on a music venue that's been there because their building was built poorly. So anyway, we have legislation that's hopefully going to pass this year that's going to address the number of this. It's called Harmonious Living. I ask you to look it up. It's another thing I think people should think about, other cities should think about when they're really addressing how to sustain their music community and how do we make this more harmonious living community with residential. We want more residents. We want more music. We want more entertainment. We will keep tracking how that Harmonious Living Act progresses and when it goes into effect and is wildly successful. Chris, we're going to have you back to tell us how wildly successful it was. Fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. Friends, we've reached the end of our conversation for today. I want to thank Scott Strickland and Chris Naum for joining me this afternoon. And a special thank you to Veronica Besesti and the team at Portland Radio Project for making me sound so good every month. And thank you to our listeners for joining us this afternoon about a conversation about music. And we'll talk to you next month on the next Stumptown Soundcheck. I've been your host, Jamie Dunphy. Stay safe out there. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Stumptown Soundcheck on PRP's podcast co-op. We hope you've enjoyed our informative discussion on Portland's music scene and its significance in our society and economy. Stumptown Soundcheck is a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. Our episode was edited by Daniel Lynn. Episodes air the fourth Sunday of every month. Until next time, stay connected to PRP and keep advocating for our vibrant music community.